0: welcome everybody Uh, this is Charlie and this is uh, I was went back and counted this is podcast number 13 in this podcast series called to hell and back and it's Wednesday uh, March 21st uh, 2018 just to place us in time and in place um, I'm speaking as usual from a room in my home in Massachusetts And uh, continuing today to speak about uh, uses of acceptance when it comes to facing adversity uh, and uh, some of the obvious and not so obvious ways that works. And uh, I found myself today thinking about the first, thinking about my own adversities as well as those of people around me. And uh, realized and when thought that probably my first adversity in life uh, which is not in my conscious memory is when I was born and then I thought it's I guess that's probably true for every one of us that uh, we have our first episode of distress uh, the second we enter the space outer space from the womb and uh, generally very distressing and obviously so um, the baby and uh, and suddenly in a, such a new environment having been in such a, a warm and cozy space not always but generally and ideally uh, where all needs are taken care of and there's a surrounding comforting secure environment and then all of a sudden there's adversity and distress and and I was thinking the first model for taking care of that uh, is then uh, again ideally is that um, as a baby we're we're caught and swaddled and given to our mother uh, who holds us and uh, takes care of our distress and uh, one of the um, outcomes of acceptance that are uh, the way I'm going to talk about it today is I think we take care of our distress uh, ideally in something like that way there's a kind of welcoming compassionate uh, focused attention to distress and of course the mother in that case has just been through a very usually a very high level of distress and pain um, and has used breathe, conscious breathing and being uh, almost inescapably in the present moment focused entirely on one thing um, right then and pain and, and then uh, a delivery, um, ideally with somebody being supportive there, and then, uh, and then is uh, relieved and, and then has the baby to focus on. And so it's from one adversity to another. So just thinking about that today, no, no further comment about that. Uh, though I think the theme of that echoes through what I plan to talk about um, now uh, I listened to the last podcast and I've heard several of my podcasts and uh, listening to it's hard because uh, well first of all there's the usual if you ever listen to yourself you become critical I find myself critical of the way I do things the way I say things and so it's probably just natural I just have to accept that that's a fact and I think if I accept it it calms down rather quickly Uh, but one thing I noticed is uh, such a focus on doom and gloom I mean of course I'm talking about hell in life and different forms of hell in life but I think it misses the point a little bit I was feeling it's kind of unbalanced because um, as I think about it, and as I will talk about today, the very things that we do with acceptance in order to manage our distress, our pain, or the pain of others, uh, is not different very much from what we do to be very happy, and sort of like the conditions for um, taking care of our pain is not too different from some of the conditions for creating our own happiness and I hope to make that point today and because uh, I mean even in the scenario of birth of course there is this uh, intense mixture of adversity distress and uh, and pain and uh, joy uh, and meaning and I think that's more what I want to emphasize is that that's part of taking care of distress is is to have these other ingredients as much as possible when when it is possible so um, what I want to do today uh, is begin uh, with a song and it's a song that uh, it's one of my favorite songs and it's a song that uh, my, my guess is of the people who would be listening many of you know this song or have heard this song either from me if you ever came to trainings with me but also from other places because I think this is the I, I think it's probably trivializes it to say this but it's kind of like the theme song for Thich Nhat Hanh if you go to a retreat a Buddhist retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh and his monks and nuns uh, will sing this and uh, people learn it and then sing it together as a group and uh, I brought it to my inpatient program in DBT after going to a retreat and uh, remember teaching it to the whole program and then uh, within the next week a social worker from that program was out on a field trip with a bunch of kids uh, in her child's classroom on a bus that had an accident and she had she taught them the song so the song goes like this and it really is it sort of captures some of the themes of today Breathing in, breathing out. Breathing in, breathing out. I am blooming as a flower. I am fresh as the dew. I am solid as a mountain. I am firm as the earth, I am free, breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out. I am water reflecting what is real. And what is true, and I feel there is space deep inside of me. I am free, I am free, I am free. And uh, I find that that's a comforting song whether i uh years ago would be putting my kids to bed or whether i'm having a rough day and i take a walk and i sing that song to myself in my own head if there's people around if there's no one around i'll sing it out loud and there's something about it being such a lullaby and so sweet compassionate and uh and 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 giving rise to the idea that when you'd use this kind of uh, acceptance and compassion and sweetness uh, that you generate things like uh, freshness and uh, solid solidity and clarity and freedom which are the four images in the song and how valuable that is to uh, highlight, emphasize and have uh, and grow the seeds of those qualities, um, and how much acceptance can allow those things to happen, as I'll talk more about, uh, and make you more capable. Um, so moving along. Um, there's no shortage of adversity for all of us. Uh, I was thinking earlier about uh, just the adversity that I have faced today. All of the adversity here would come with a small A, not a capital A. Um, today I, uh, I was uh, distressed uh, by realizing once again when I woke up that uh, my wife and I are in the middle of being audited by the IRS uh, which we've never faced before and which they said was done on a random basis though I have trouble eliminating uh, thoughts that there's other reasons uh, that we were selected but um, and it's just a, a ton of work tedious work to go back years and to dig out things and to know that there's somebody waiting for these things it's just a level of distress about that um, and uh finding out late last night by an email uh, through somebody I haven't heard from for decades uh, that my seventh grade girlfriend uh, has ALS and is uh, at the very end stage of that. And so I, I wrote uh, a letter to uh, her and her husband, who I haven't seen her since age 18, and uh, just made me very sad and sort of cast a pall around things at the moment that I learned it and then remembered some good memories uh, about it that grew out of that um, I received a letter yesterday that I looked at again this morning that was disappointing uh, without going into details just something that I expected that did not come through Uh I was distressed that I realized as I headed into the day that I had a lot to do and I probably had more to do than I could possibly do today and that included knowing that I had lots of things to catch up on I've recently had you know weeks ago I had a surgery I've had other things going on and uh, still kind of catching up and so it felt disappointing and uh, burdensome and a little bit overwhelmed uh, I was upset this morning that I had to email somebody in Australia uh, who I had promised to do some kind of uh, certain special kind of DBT advanced training with and um, that he was really counting on it and I was really wanting to do it and things weren't going to work out so I had to let him know in other words uh, this is uh, not there's nothing special about this day or me Uh, i think anyone listening to this podcast could probably have given their own list of things uh, maybe even some things with a capital a or uh, today and um and so it's just you know life just throws one little thing after another uh to most of us Uh, not and not all the time but a lot of the time and it's just sort of how do we go through that it's sort of like winds are blowing all the time the winds of, uh, of of things that are a little bit uncomfortable distressing disruptive painful and it's easy to get uh, overwhelmed and uh, blown over uh, by this and pi- have things pile up um, and so each of these things that come up uh, takes some degree of attention and how we attend to them I think makes a big difference Uh, when we're, when we're down and out and we're already, uh, under the weather, so to speak, or under a bunch of burdens and then more hit, uh, we, I think it's really hard to keep getting up. And, uh, and so, um, uh, it helps to be, not to, it helps to be addressing not only each one that comes along in a certain way, but it also helps to have a certain stability or resiliency there in the first place. Um, and uh i think you can cultivate that i think you can cultivate responses to these things and that's what i want to talk about next is uh, i started last podcast talking about the five principles that um, i that i uh, have in my mind about uh acceptance what it means uh, to to ex- to uh, use them for acceptance in our lives and how that helps with uh going through hell and how it works with uh, generating happiness so I want to go back uh, I started on some of them and I want to uh, be uh, starting in a way uh, from s- scratch but saying different and new and different things um, and some of the same things but I want to sort of put it together so here's the first one uh, I want I, I I want to talk about it in a slightly different way than I did before Uh, which is to establish ourselves in the present moment um, which assumes that we aren't necessarily doing that to begin with and in fact I think usually we're not at least I would speak for myself that usually I am NOT because when I do realize when I do think you know I'm going to I'm going to wake up into this moment I'm going to establish my mind and my presence and my attention in this present moment I realize well I'm saying that because I haven't been Um, usually you know busy my mind is busy it's busy with things outside the present moment beyond this moment behind this moment in the past in the future other things and I'm reacting to lots of things about all those things and I think this probably is the way most of us goes because I think to establish yourself in the present moment is something that requires for most of us some degree of attention unless something happens let's say like childbirth the way I was talking about it kind of forces you to be in the present moment Um, but here's what I'm talking about now is that to establish yourself in the present moment the metaphor I want to use is that we need to extend our roots into the here and now Uh, we need to and I I Experience this as a kind of a, almost a, almost a, what would I say a metaphor that I feel uh, it's palpable to me sometimes when I uh, bring my attention into this moment what do I mean I mean I'm bringing my attention into what is coming into my mind my body my brain from the five senses of uh, sensory modalities I'm, I'm seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. These things are coming in, and this is how I learn about the world. And uh, those things that are immediately there coming into my brain, um, that's the present moment. That's the real news. Uh, everything else is the fake news. And uh, there's also uh, not just those five senses, but the internal sensing of what's going on in our organs, our body, our muscles. Well, for instance, we I think we often have a sense of our own energy budget. When somebody says, hey, do you want to go do something? You say, ah, I don't think I could do that. I don't think I can do one more thing right now. We, we're calling upon a very complex sensing of, uh, well, here's how much energy I think I have. I don't think I have enough energy for that. Um, and so when I say extending roots into the here and now, I just mean I bring my mind bring my attention to what I see around me what I hear around me uh, what I feel what I smell what I taste around me what I feel inside me noticing those things including noticing and sensing what my thoughts are that are passing through my mind that that this is what I mean And, and it's so simple to say and so hard to do because it's so easy to be pulled out of that As soon as we have a train of thought that goes somewhere else, uh, we're gone. We're gone. Like, boom. (laughs) We just vanished. And uh, one of the reasons I like the Breathing In, Breathing Out song is that when you do that song, it kind of brings you into that song and into breathing and into certain imagery. So it it walks you through uh, it uh, in a structured way a set of images and uh, focus on breathing that that i think brings you more into the present moment though you could be singing that song automatically while distracting so i think that's what i mean by coming into the present moment and establishing ourselves uh the way a tree in order to face the next windstorm if only a tree that didn't have many roots could put their roots deeper into the earth that's what i'm talking about and And I think that I want to convey this and I don't know that everybody feels it this way but when I do that when I just bring myself into the attention into my attention into what's coming into me right here and right now and nowhere else and no when else um, I feel like I've okay here I am I'm grounded and I feel um, connected to my environment and I feel aware of my body and, uh, and aware of my breath and just this kind of awareness I think uh, creates a, co- a, a set of connections between me and what's around me between me and myself and I feel like that's where it all starts and then something comes in from outside and I'm I cope with it from a place of being rooted and if something comes from inside let's say like anger comes up say anger comes up, let's say anger towards the IRS, which is, you know, anger towards another person, Um, if that comes up and it's an uncomfortable level of anger, I might be able to establish myself in the present moment and that will create a kind of groundedness in which I can have that anger. And I can allow myself to feel that anger and I don't need to dash that anger away or to react against it uh, or to exaggerate. I just can be with it. It's like meeting one form of energy, anger, with another form of energy, which you might call the energy of present moment, the energy of mindfulness, the energy of awareness, that it's a very meaningful energy that we generate So that I think that when we do establish ourselves in the present moment, there's several products of that, several outcomes that are useful for us in coping. I think that, at least for me, and I think this is not unusual, if you really do that, there's a certain kind of greater objectivity that you look and you see things more clearly then if you're on the move or you're looking at it from a certain angle or from a certain intellectual perspective or a certain biased perspective or a certain emotional perspective, you are grounded in just basic factual stuff coming into you. And if you can take root, you look at things and say, oh, okay, yeah, I, I'm, I'm angry. Uh, what am I angry about? And you might ask it rather than say, what the hell am I angry about? Or why did that happen to me? You're just sort of like, okay. What am I angry about? What am I angry about? And it doesn't mean you have to diminish your anger, though it does tend to contain it a little more. So I do think there's greater objectivity about anything from just looking more carefully at uh, some aspect of nature that you're looking at or looking more carefully at somebody uh, sitting across from you uh, or, or anything else. So I think there's more clarity and objectivity that can grow out of being in the present moment I think compassion seems to grow naturally out of being in the present moment it's just kind of I don't know I can be upset with somebody reacting not from a present moment location and I'm really mm, disconnected and have maybe strong feelings towards somebody let's say I'm negative or I'm uncomfortable or I'm afraid or I'm ashamed or something I'm looking at somebody but then if I reestablish myself as more grounded it sort of has to do with first establishing my relationship with myself more clearly and solidly then I can maybe look at that other person uh, and I can see oh wait a minute well look uh, let me see that person actually is a person too and What they're doing that has frightened me or made me ashamed or made me angry or made me hurt or sad you know they they did that from being them and maybe they did it not from a grounded place themselves but then I know what that is I I go around not grounded most of the time myself I've hurt people myself I've scared people myself I've it probably shamed people myself, often inadvertently, most of these things, but it's, it happens. And then, you know, I might be able to look at the other person and realize, okay, there's a person with a history, there's a person who was born, there's a person who cried as a baby, you know, and, and it's just sort of like you end up with a different point of view if you get to that. It may not be very quick that one would get to that. I think your awareness is just generally sharper and your compassion is uh, is more readily available including compassion towards ourselves so finally about this I would just say that if we can establish ourselves in the present moment by the very practical matter of it doesn't mean you're doing some deep incredible meditation you're just looking around you're listening you might close your eyes just to feel things in a different way um, but you're bringing your your mind and your energy into what's here, what's now. You're turning off your phone. You're turning off your television. You're uh, just locating yourself there. And when you do that, I think that it's possible to generate energy, m- mindful energy, and then you can use that energy to take care of yourself, to take care of disappointment, take care of hurt and sadness and grief and fear and anger and all these things that are that all come with different versions of hell with a capital H and a small H it's sort of like going through the day the kind of day I was describing for myself with these various kind of ordinary levels most of them burdens um, you know I'm just lighter if I uh, intermittently doesn't have to be all the time it's like getting an infusion of energy every once in a while by just stopping and taking a few conscious breaths noticing the body here or there noticing something around me noticing nature if i'm uh, if it's available and it's just kind of like okay 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 now i'll do this all right yep okay irs is auditing all right well that's just a step by step procedure i have to go through this i'd it's not pleasant it's not meant to be pleasant but you know I have to do this and yes my seventh grade girlfriend is in a terrible situation I feel very badly for her I just kind of let myself feel sad and compassionate remember some positive memories and then I, I sent her this letter well by email actually her and her husband because apparently she's at a stage where he reads things to her Um you know and I just read I just said some positive memories uh, that I thought might be might I might want to hear if I was in the process she's in now uh, and 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 surrounded by misery um, that there's some things I want to think about in my life so it it helped me to do those things right Um, uh, this brings to mind and I didn't know where or if I would say this today um, but um, I was looking back through a an album a couple days ago of uh, a time, uh, a summer, about 23 years ago. It was just before the birth of my first son. And I spent part of the summer uh, at the Hole in the Wall gang camp for terminally ill and chronically ill children, uh, a camp developed by Paul Newman and with his the philanthropy of his food businesses that took off. Uh he lit he had a cabin there he and his wife he would go there at the beginning he had a lot of passionate ideas about these children and what they needed and what kind of thing he wanted to do and it was just a complete knockout of an experience for me maybe some of you know it know have been there f- in from one perspective or another first thing that knocked me out was going into the camp hundred twenty kids a lot of counselors a lot of people like me, volunteers or a few people like me maybe one or two per cabin of eight kids and then there'd be staff in the cabin like of one or two um, and uh, when you go into this camp there was a big uh, arch that you drive under that says I'm trying to remember exactly what it said but I can't remember exactly it said it started by saying summers short uh, something like summer's short get into it summer's short uh, make it count or something like that you know that a course is just one step removed from life is short uh, get into it and so I was already uh, just had tears came to my eyes because uh, also there were uh, that was a couple days before the camp uh, started because there was it was an orientation for us and then but was the same place where all the families and kids come in a couple of days later um, and I want to say some things about this camp because I realized as I thought about this today that this camp was based so much on what I'm talking about that you could almost boil it down to being an attempt to build an environment for kids in distress kids in pain kids in medical treatment kids knowing or thinking they may die soon Uh, what kind of place would you make and it was just so beautiful uh, what he developed what they developed Um, and so uh, I want to say a little about it and how it manifests what I'm talking about he wanted to create a camp for sick children whose lives were dominated by medical facts and medical procedures for sometimes for years sometimes not not as long and he wanted it to be a camp where kids had as normal an experience as possible of camp a camp experience for really kids that are in this situation so there needed to be medical care there and there was there was a medical setting there near the dining hall. It was called the OK Corral. And if you needed to get your chemotherapy in the morning, you'd go to the OK Corral on the way to the dining hall. And it was it looked like a, a corral. It looked like a log cabin. You'd go in with stuff around it that did not look like a medical place. It looked more like a corral, like a horse place or something. And and uh, you'd go in there and get your medication or get tested for whatever you're doing and then later in the day you're you're going back there whenever you're supposed to go there and it's a very low-key part of the camp and there's a place I noticed right away in this giant beautiful dining hall again sort of constructed in a log cabin style but very big easily accommodated 120 kids with all these tables and some other space and um, and in uh, in the back middle of it was a, a, a place by a fireplace and with several um, couches, comfortable couches around. And it's a place where kids, if they don't feel good, if they don't feel good enough to be sitting with their peers at, at a meal, uh, or if they just have to be sitting out of an activity, they can go sit there and hang out there and it's comfortable and they have stuff there to, read or to play with or to look at or puzzled and it's just a very cozy kind of place and kids would just come and go from there but mostly the camp was set up in a way that kids really wanted to be with their group and they would try to be with their group and counselors and would create a culture in which you were really trying to get everybody to to be in as many things as possible and i've found going through the day this extraordinary extraordinary like a modeled something for me that's part of this talk and it's part of myself um, is that the focus on going fishing on swimming on taking a hike on doing some kind of art or craft rolling out in, uh, on the grass or looking at the sky from the grass um, doing at camp or doing an overnight walk into the woods and then build a fire and stay overnight as a group things like that were the centerpiece like camp it was like camp and you're going around and I'm going around helping kids do all kinds of things and being kind of an organizer and a helper and whatever it is and um and meanwhile I'm aware not far from the front of my mind oh my god these kids their situations and I knew about the ones in my cabin there were, I was in the cabin with the oldest kids which was 13 year old boys and so there were eight 13 year old boys every one of whom had a very serious illness and um, uh, I would hang around with them but I would, there were kids as, as young as six and as old as 13 um, and there was a kind of a uh, uh, during the day this feeling that just behind the surface I could cry if I just stopped and let myself think about it and uh, I but I wouldn't usually something might bring tears to my eyes but mostly it was like we were laughing we were having fun I mean they kept the water a nice warm temperature uh, and it was fun to be in. it was a beautiful big pool all kinds of surprising things would happen and this is the advantage of having philanthropy there and paul newman and his food paying for stuff uh because you know one day one one night after dinner at the dining hall we all go back to where the cabins are which form a giant circle around a giant field that has lawn in it and so the cabins it's like one giant circle of cabins and uh, you go back we went back to the giant circle and in that circle there were eight uh, hot air balloons beautiful colors already inflated and ready to go up and it was a total surprise to everybody including the counselors and then the kids are being loaded into hot air balloons uh, going up and going on rides and then coming back down and then other kids are getting in and just something like that happening like oh my god look at that um, so there were all kinds of joyful moments and relationships being built and kids, you know, developing skills and activities and doing things, you know, that that you do at camp. And you just looked like a normal camp in so many ways, unless you just doubled down and looked around and saw, oh, yeah, there's the OK Corral, there's the couches, oh there's kids that can't really do very much right now. And so just below the surface, you're dealing with all this, and I think it's, in a way, it's a model for being in the present moment. This camp was like built for being in the present moment. Just that's what camp's built for in some ways, a good camp. And kids are going from one thing to another, to another, and they're engaged in it and they're doing it. And that's what they're thinking about. And they, when they go to the dining hall, there's somebody who's playing, uh, music. They had an, ex- a, a really uh, talented kind of young man who was one of the counselors but he was he doubled as being the guy who was the kind of i don't know mc during dinner with a uh, with music up there and with a microphone and with uh, really calling out names and 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 making it a lot of fun so even during a meal it was a lot of fun during one of the meals i was sitting at breakfast with these 13 year old boys and i looked behind me on the benches at the next table and there was a, a man with his back to me, he looked like an old guy, and I said, to, I said to the guys at my table, I said, hey guys, who's the old guy over there? And one of them said, oh, that's Paul. I said, really? You mean Paul Newman? He says, yeah, that's Paul. He always comes around. And they they knew him from earlier in the week or from a, a previous year if they were there a previous year because some of these kids had chronic illnesses and they were coming back. And th- this was all for free. Families had to pay nothing for this because it was paid for by all this uh, popcorn and salad dressing that we were all buying, things like that. Um, so it was a very engaging dining experience. Um, and then what would happen at night... Was very interesting. At back at our cabin, before we'd go to bed, we'd have a cabin chat. And the first night, the ca- and it was these were led by the staff counselors, not by the volunteers like me. Um, and it, they were leading this, you know, discussion, just talking about what you do today, normal talking. So the first night it was like that, and kind of chatty and superficial. The second night it was a little like that. By the third night. They were just allowing things to come up and kids were just bringing up stuff about their illnesses about their day about their aches and pains and it just was so moving I mean I really felt like this was a perfect example in the terms of what I'm talking about today of uh, generating mindful energy during the day focusing on one here and now thing after another uh, generating that kind of energy that kind of experience and then sitting down and talking about these uh life uh, altering situations for everybody and the kids were so matter-of-fact to some degree about it I mean it was moving there were tears sometimes but kids were just saying you know I don't know I don't know if I'll be able to be a camp next year because I you know, my illness, there's a good chance I'm not going to make it. And um, then someone else would say something like that, and someone else would comment on, you know, he was having some pain. He thought maybe he was even closer than that. And another one was saying, gee, I hope it never happens. I want to do such and such with my life. And it was like, oh, my God, it's incredible to be here, able to have this conversation in a reasonable but emotional way, in a in DBT terms, in a wise-minded kind of way. And the counselors were very good at at monitoring and managing these conversations. Um, there was one boy, I just want to finish by saying, there was one boy in our group uh, went by the nickname of Mugsy, And there aren't many people who go by that nickname, so it's possible that somewhere, somehow, uh, his parents or somebody who knew him would hear this uh, but I thought about this in advance and I thought you know what I don't think that would be a problem um, uh, because uh, his parents were so grateful for the camp and uh, and I heard from them and talked with them a bit afterwards because um, Mugsy was the, was the closest to death of anybody in our cabin um, he had been a uh, a super champion athlete uh, tri-state or something like New Jersey, Connecticut, New York tennis champion uh, at age like 11 or something and he was really smart and a very interesting boy and by the time I met him and he's 13 he had had like a fair amount of time with brain cancer and I'm sorry if if this conversation is too upsetting for some people I'd say just you know you don't have to listen to all of this um, I, I don't you know depending on your circumstances it could be painful to hear about these things and I understand that Um, but Muggsy was uh, a great spirit but he was uh, really uh, disabled by this point he really couldn't uh, walk he had to be in a wheelchair he had trouble getting up and getting dressed and he was uh, you know and he wanted to be in everything and I spent a lot of time with him as the as one of the volunteer counselors helping him get around and get where he wanted to go and I was so struck that the energy that got created by the whole camp and then got created into this cabin and into these 13 year old boys not always known in middle schools and first year of high school as being the most compassionate bunch but oh my god they were so, this energy got, that got going, they were so kind to each other and to Mugsy in particular, I think because of his status, what situation he was in, um, that they didn't want to leave him out of anything. And Mugsy wanted to go in a hot air balloon that evening. And the seven other boys, uh, Mugsy said, I can't, no, it's too much trouble to get me up in the hot air balloon with my wheelchair here and everything. And the other boys would have none of it, so the seven of them got together under one of the balloons, and they uh, lifted him up with the help of a couple of adults there and helped him get into the balloon, and as many of them as possible got into the balloon with him, and up and away they went. Um, When it was time to go camping, about mm, a week into the uh, two-week stay that these boys had, you know, they were going to be hiking through some, some terrain that was not that easy. And he's in a wheelchair. And there was a discussion in our cabin about, you know, is somebody going to stay back with Muggsy? Is everybody going to go? Blah, blah, blah. Once again, Muggsy said, I, well, I wish I could go, but I don't want to slow everybody down. And the boys said, oh no, are you kidding? You're coming with us and, uh, we're, we're going to, if necessary, we'll carry you. And lo and behold, on that camping day, there was a lot of the territory that wasn't easy to traverse on a wheelchair. So the boys just surrounded his wheelchair and picked him up. He was not a light kid. And carried him along and they hiked like for two miles with Mugsy and then set up the tent and everything. I was so moved by the whole thing. When I look back on it now, it still brings up a lot of emotion in me. And, uh, but, but what uh, the point that I'm making is that it's like a, an extreme version or a group-wide version of what I'm trying to talk about here is that you can, in the face of hell and adversity, uh, if you root yourself in the here and now, and you take your sustenance from what's real around you, uh, generate a level of energy as an individual and as a group, that can do amazing things and can tolerate amazing things and so I think of that as a model in the back of my mind of trying to get through things including when I've run DBT skills groups there was once uh, a young woman who wanted to uh, have her first job and she was had such high levels of anxiety that she didn't think she could ever work and she was learning skills to regulate her anxiety and to stay focused and be functional. And uh, we had a group of six or seven patients, and uh, she got a job. She went and started looking at jobs, and she got a job as a barista at a coffee shop, like a Starbucks type of place. It was a local place, not a Starbucks. But... And so she was going to go to this uh, job, but then she was terrified about it and talking about it in our skills group. And how am I going to do this? And the first day, I don't think I'll get through it, blah, blah, blah. And one of the other patients in the group, I think because there was good energy going at that moment in this group, said, "Uh, well, look, why don't we set up a rotating schedule and sign up so that starting on your first day, we'll sign up and twice a day, one of us will come in, order coffee or something from you, you know, give you support and sit down and hang out there for a while so that you're not alone and I was so touched by that I just thought yeah that is compassion that's acceptance that's acceptance that it's going to be hard and just sort of saying what can we do about it Um, and so it was very very uh, impressive and 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 they did they set up a schedule where in the morning somebody would go there and then in the afternoon somebody would go there during her shifts and uh, and they would go up order coffee from her And then she would get it and give that. And they did not indicate they didn't want to make it publicly obvious that they were part of a group or that they even knew each other. So they would just wink at her or give her a thumbs up or just sort of say, hey, good job. One person, even one of the fellow patients, even after getting coffee from her then uh, went to the cash register and it was clear that it was the supervisor or the boss that was at the cash register. So this person said, hey, that girl over there that I just got coffee from, she seems new here, isn't she? And she said, yeah, she's a new employee. She said, just want to tell you, she's a keeper. She's really good. And it was so sweet that she did that. And then hang out and sit in a place where she could see you. So this this uh, ability to step out and uh, take care of each other's adversity, I think is part of what can happen um, with that situation. By the way, uh, any of you who are still listening, if you can stand it, um, uh, about Muggsy. On the final night there, there was a talent show. All the kids would get ready for it, and they could do whatever they wanted to do. And uh, Muggsy wanted to do a stand-up comedy routine. Guy could could barely stand up but he wanted to do a comedy routine he also had trouble speaking um, his face and his head was a bit distorted by uh, both uh la, la, a long time of meds and uh, and surgery and he um, so he looked uh, it was going to be tough I wondered how's he going to do this he gets up at the front with of course the, uh, the other seven boys and they're on they're in the wings of the stage a couple of them came out with him, wheeling his wheelchair, and then halfway across the stage, Muggsy stops it, and he says, no, I'll go the rest of the way. And he insists on getting out of his wheelchair, and he staggers to the middle of the stage. There's a microphone. He didn't want the kids next to him right then. He was appreciative, but he said, no, I'm going to do this. He gets up there, and he delivers Like joke after joke of a stand-up routine that just brought the house down it was just incredible Um, just you know what can happen what can happen with hell uh, being surrounded by this kind of acceptance Um, and even in the original documents about the camp I looked it up and a couple things I just quoted uh, what that Paul Newman and his colleagues wanted to have here he said he wanted there to be a fun-filled experience that was defined by compassion laughter and acceptance and then another quote uh, among kindred spirits facing similar challenges they escape isolation and find a community defined by acceptance that was the whole idea of the camp so it's a very uh, very interesting thing when you're thinking about the role of acceptance in your own life in facing challenges so let everybody take a breath you take a breath huh <sighs> sometimes what it is just take a breath in and a breath out noticing everything in the present moment when you're emotional um, all right moving on what do you notice when you're establishing yourself in the present moment which to me is the core principle of the acceptance principles well a number of things that I can say fairly quickly because in a way they've already been illustrated you notice impermanence you begin to notice when you really pay attention that things are changing things are passing I mean we don't usually notice it day by day unless you were sitting at uh, uh, wherever you live and watching a certain tree or watching the foliage around and realizing that every single day everything is different things are evolving every day things are dying things are living things are being born things are coming to life etc and you realize that you know yeah summer is short life is short um, connections to other people can be very brief if you realize that that everything is passing everything is impermanent uh, that can be an intellectual realization which doesn't go very far it's just kind of interesting but what makes it more useful is if you can really uh, grasp it and let yourself realize that every moment is unique and that if you have a feeling of uh, love towards Somebody that you love and it's a, a certain unique moment that you're having and a certain thought it might be a good idea to share it um, and if there's something that needs to be taken care of it's not going to take care of itself necessarily so you might just jump on it you might be more likely to if you're thinking "Well, things are passing you know I'll do this now I better do this Or like my friend and I've probably mentioned this before my friend uh, who did pass away in 2003 uh, Cindy Sanderson that you know when we would teach and she had this strategy about teaching that if you have an idea uh, to try something new and different or on the edge or you're not sure if it's a good idea just do it you know as she would say it oh it was her what the fuck strategy just what the fuck just do it you know life short Um, and uh, unless it's going to be really damaging to somebody and so I think that um, there's all of these things follow from recognizing impermanence um, you know doing what you can do when you can do it um, then I think there's another principle that uh, one gains recognition into more deeply recognizes when you're really go routinely back into the present moment uh, which is um, that uh, that that your anxieties and fears and a lot of negative feelings are driven in part by these attachments so I made I wrote down a list earlier on a little piece of paper here of everything I got attached to today here's what I was attached to today and I look at it, it just exhausts me, even though it was just a normal day in many ways. Get everything done on my to-do list. I was attached to that. Catch up with emails. Um, see all of my patients and try to be fully present when they're there. Do some work on the IRS audit. Come up with some at least one or two great transformative ideas in therapy. You know, holding myself to a certain uh, attachment to a certain standard, like what if I don't do something that's really dramatically helpful um, that makes it disappointing. Uh, Take, take, Start taking online classes to get enough continuing medical education credits to make sure I get my license renewed. Um, I have pain from the surgery that I had on my hip, you know. I was attached to the idea that my pain should be gone by now. Um, and I was attached to the idea that my book that I wrote uh, a couple years ago published that should be selling more copies. All of those things are going on. I'm attached to those things. None of them are huge things, Uh, but you add them all up, and what's the equation? It's attachments equal suffering. Uh, I, I could have gone through the day, and just let those things go away. And with most of them, I did. I didn't stay with every one of them all the time. But you look at the, all those things, and there were probably another 10. And if I asked all of you, anyone listening, I, I bet you are had some attachments like these today. And the question is, can you have an attachment like that? And then just let it go, because it actually might not help. And you just want to be grounded in here and now reality without those kind of attachments. Just trying to get done what you need to get done. So um, I think that when a bad thing happens in your life, when things are difficult, something's disruptive or distressing, is it possible that we can get ourselves to accept that it is exactly what it is, that what happened is exactly what happened, and it has happened, and it needed to happen in a certain way, given what happened before that and before that and before that, and so, um, you know, that we suffer if we don't accept it so it's a big part of dealing with adversity is to tease out the parts that we're adding on because we're adding attachments onto what's already inevitably distressing situation I was supervising someone today on Skype who was telling me about a 27 year old man that he was treating And he was wanting help with this because he said, this guy just isn't, they're they're just not making any forward movement. There's no progress. The guy moves forward two steps and he's back two steps, forward two steps, back two steps. He said, it's getting frustrating and it's difficult, you know, for both of them. And I said, you know, are are you attached to trying to create more movement than that? Yeah, I guess I really am. I mean, and he gives me the reason to think that because he wants to also okay but how long have you worked with him well about seven or eight months has it been like this all along yeah I said so it's something of the nature of the situation the current situation and it it could change and you want to find what the causes and conditions are that are that are that keep this going but the fact that you every time you see him and in between that you and probably he are measuring yourself against a standard that you haven't even seen that he's capable of yet I just wonder if you're kind of narrowly pressuring in on something that's unrealistic right now and it sort of had to do with trying to relieve his distress uh, that caused him to be suffering because of his attachments uh, and recognize this is as it is and maybe if he thought that way things would shift interbeing gosh this is what i got to last time let me just say about interbeing for these four minutes it's the other interbeing was sort of captured by the camp the idea of interbeing is kind of deep and it's really the idea that uh that we are uh incredibly interdependent that there is no such thing as just me that i can't if i it's it's incorrect to think that I am, that I am a solo being because I am not only made up from the beginning of everything else around me, but it's maintained every day. I I become who I am every day because of other people I run into or don't run into but think about. Or other things that go into me, where I live, what I eat every day, what I do every day, who I talk to every day, what I read every day, music I listen to every day. These become part of me, and I am nothing apart from everything that is me. And if you let yourself really take that in, it has profound implications. For instance, um, to realize that you really are... Not yourself there really is no yourself there's no self that's unique and different it's made up entirely of everything else and it's maintained by everything else in me are my ancestors if I hadn't had my ancestors I wouldn't be they are in me in me is every event I've been to and everything everybody who has put effort into me they're all in me In me is just all kinds of, the the makeup of me is just a lot of molecules like everybody else. But there's something that we experience ourselves as very isolated, very separate, as having unique selves that act upon each other. Whereas in fact, we're kind of all affecting each other all the time. We're all on the, on the raft, the river raft of life going through the rapids. And if one person moves in the raft, it affects everyone else. Especially those kind of rubber inflatable rafts that you go down whitewater. So I just want to stop with that because time's up. Um, I'm going to uh, deciding what I'm going to do next week. Uh, either either next week or the week after, I'm going to talk about try to bring lessons from from what is learned when therapists treat uh, trauma and PTSD. So I think there's lessons for all of us. In that that often doesn't get shared more broadly okay but I might finish up with interdependence next week too um, thanks for listening bye